add my congratulations to the graduates. That was wonderful seeing you up there this morning. Thankful for the youth ministry here at Grace and building into your lives. Thankful for parents uh, discipling you and training you up in the things of the Lord. So that's a, a wonderful opportunity for us to celebrate together. At the other end of the spectrum of celebrations and youthfulness, I watched a memorial service online the other day. It was a celebration of life for a woman who died at the age of 50. She was married, she was a mother of five. Her husband described how she had suffered from an autoimmune disease for the better part of 30 years. And she was often homebound as a result of it. It, it just kept her isolated from people. And for the last five years, she was dealing with cancer on top of that and so suffering greatly. Um, unable to really get out of the house much, she was able to attend a few major family events, the wedding of her son, uh, but for the most part, the other activities, the sports, the things that her, her children were doing, she wasn't able to go and, and be there in person. But her family, one after another, came up and, and just gave testimonies of how she loved Jesus, how she reveled in his goodness, how she wrote songs of praise to Jesus. And her husband read Psalm 28, 7. He said this was her life verse. She had held on to this from her teen years. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. And he, he, he said how throughout the, the final years of her life, when things were especially hard and painful, she, she spoke often of her faith in Jesus Christ of what that faith meant and how it was rooted in God's truth and how important it was to her and how it, it gave her joy even in the midst of suffering. A faith that endures. A faith that grows deeper when there are times of trial and adversity. A faith that produces real joy even in the midst of suffering. That's the kind of faith in Jesus Christ that I think we all desire. It's also the kind of faith in Jesus Christ that James writes about in the book of James. We're starting a study this morning in the book of James, and you can turn to James chapter 1. More than a dozen times in the first two chapters of his book, James refers to faith in Jesus Christ in, in some measure. He's talking about some aspect of our faith in Jesus. And his, his message throughout the book is that this faith is not some mere act of the intellect or the emotions, but rather it is, it is something that is a definable faith. It is something that is held deeply, and it is defined, and it is displayed. His emphasis on defining what that faith is is something that's interesting in the book of James. There's not a uh, critics over the years of the book of James have said, well, there's, it's hard to see a clear enunciation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of James. And yet it is very clear right from the start what he's describing as the object of this faith that he is writing about. He uses the title, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it in James chapter 2, verse 1, that brothers and sisters are those who have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses it in his introduction, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's essentially a name and, and two titles. Jesus, who is the Lord and who is the Christ. And so James begins this letter by saying, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And together those words, Lord Jesus Christ, really 
define for us what it is the object of this faith that he is talking about. The name Jesus or Yeshua is Savior. It is the fact that Jehovah saves, that that God saves. And so to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is fundamentally to believe that I am in need of, of salvation. I need rescue that only Jesus can give. This Jesus is the Lord. He is the kurios, the the master, the the sovereign one. He is in charge. And so faith in Jesus Christ also means gladly bowing down in submission to him and to his rule, acknowledging him as, as the sovereign over creation, as having all things made through him and all things held together by him. The Lord Jesus is also the, the Christos, the Christ. He is, it means the anointed one, the one who has been anointed by God the Father to do all that he has sent the Messiah to do, to deliver a people for his glory. Jesus is not, as, as some skeptics or agnostics might say, just some ordinary man who stepped into history with strong leadership skills and, and was able to compel a group of followers. He was sent and empowered by God the Father to do that which God set out for him to do, to give his life as a ransom for sinners, to die in our place, to rise again and crush the power of sin and death. And so the faith that James writes about is the faith of one who fully trusts that Jesus is Savior, that He is Lord, and that He is Christ, He is the Messiah. It's also clear in James that this faith is not merely defined, but it is displayed. That this is a faith that is, that is living and active, that is real. Uh, historically, the, the book of James has occasionally been subject to criticism, not only because of the question I mentioned to you earlier, some sort of picking, if you will, at its Christology, its depth of teaching about the person of Jesus Christ. But the, the, the second area, and the one you can go back and, and read Luther on this, that, that James was subject to most criticism about was his emphasis on obedience, on, on works. And what he's describing for us is a faith that is lived out, a faith that bears fruit of obedience that is displayed in its works. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in Jesus as Savior, is to know, to to submit to the the control of the Lord in every aspect of life. It is not merely to believe in Him for salvation, but it is also to submit to Him. And so how we face trials and temptations, how we address conflicts with others and desires, how we speak and act toward others, how we respond to the world's enticements, even how we plan for the future, All of that should be changed in some way because we are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even to to use the illustration that I did at the beginning, even to to live for years with a debilitating sickness, ultimately that should be transformed by, by believing in Jesus Christ, how we live, how we face those things. Because James is speaking about a deep, practical, street level Faith. That's why we've called this series what we have, street-level faith. It is, it is a faith that is to impact every aspect of our lives. And the book of James also wants us to understand, and here's really the focus for this morning, which is the beginning of James chapter 1. James wants us to understand that one of the kindest things that God can do for his people is to test our faith. It is to bring us through experiences of trial, of adversity, of challenge, so that he might test our faith, we who who profess to believe in him, 
By testing our faith, it shows the authenticity of that faith and grows that faith. It's really kind because it also prevents false profession of faith. Those who would say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but yet who love the world or who curse God or refuse to guard their speech or who hate other people because of the, the color of their skin or their income bracket or whatever it might be. James is saying, no, your faith needs to be tested to demonstrate that it is a real faith because if, you, if you're, you're constantly doing these sorts of things, then, then you need your faith to be exposed because maybe it's a profession that, that doesn't reflect a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's how James starts here. We'll, we'll read this, how he speaks about the testing of the servant's faith. There's four main points that we're going to cover this morning, preparing for tests of faith, enduring tests of our faith, having a vision for uh, the outcome that God intends for tests of faith, and then finally crying out to Jesus during tests of our faith. also have Bob to thank from the first service to the second service. He said to me, you know, you could summarize these and alliterate them as, as one's preparation, one's perseverance, one's purpose, and one's prayer. Thank you, Bob, for, for the four names. So they're not in your sermon notes, but you can add them there if they help you to remember these things, the preparation, the perseverance, the purpose, and the prayer. This is our first week in James, and so I just want to make sure that we also touch on the fact that when we talk about the book of James, we're talking about the word of God as it is given through a human author, and James has been historically throughout the church understood to be the, the brother of Jesus, also born to Joseph and Mary, so technically half-brother of, of Jesus. Um, the same James who we see in the book of Acts as an early influential leader in the early church, same James who is not a believer in Jesus Christ until after his resurrection, as best as we can tell, and then rises to this influential role, this elder role in the Jerusalem church. This James could have started his letter by saying, James, a brother of Jesus in, in, in the most intimate of ways, perhaps. And yet he doesn't. He doesn't rely on that. In fact, you see it in verse 1, James, a servant. The word is doulos, means slave. We, we make servant because it's easier on our ears, but it's James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how James wants to be identified with his fellow believers as servants of Jesus Christ. All right, so that's, that's who this is. How do we now prepare as he begins to talk about the testing of our faith? How do we prepare? And he starts first with this mindset in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You prepare for the testing of your faith, the trials that bring about that testing, by how you think. Your mindset matters. In verses 2 through 8, just in this short passage, there'll be four different occasions where James in some way alludes to how we think. First one being here, count it, reckon it, think about it. Count it all joy. And so there is an emphasis in James on our, our mental predisposition, how we think about something, how we frame it in our minds. I can, I can give you an example of this. If you go to the mailbox and you take out an envelope and the return address says internal revenue service, and somewhere on the envelope it says official business, what's your predisposition when you pull out that envelope? Do, do you pull that out and go, yes, they must be sending me a bigger refund check than I intended. This is going to be even better than I thought. Or do you pull that out and you go, oh, no, not this. What do they want? 
What, what does this mean? This is something bad, right? Because we've already got a, a sort of predisposed thought in our minds. James 1 verse 2 is saying, this is, this is how to think as you face the testing of your faith, as you face the next trial. And he uses that word count or consider, it may say in your translation, count it all, consider it all joy. It comes from a, a Greek word that originally described a supervisor or a leader. That's what that count or consider means. So, so if you can picture a a military general, and he is poring over the maps, and he is trying to discern a strategy for warfare. He is he's studying to try to figure out what's best. Or a doctor who's looking at x-rays and charts, and he's, he's trying to, to discern what the best path of treatment is. Or, or, or a business person who's looking at the books and the data, trying to decide what to do next. That's, that's the picture here. Study this. Think about this. Set your mind on this. And in particular, he says, count it all joy. The middle of a trial is not time for frivolous thinking. We're not trivial when we get right in the midst of a trial. We know that trials can turn your world upside down and it can shake you completely. And that's why this is, this is urging that even, even now, even now as we think about the reality of various kinds of trials, even now we have a mindset that thinks there's, there's something about this that's joyful. I need to see what the joy is in this. And we're going to talk about what that is as we go through this. But, but there's a way to face these with joy. This joy is an interesting term. We don't get this connection quite as easily in our English translations. But the very last word in verse 1 goes with the very first word in verse 2, which in the Greek is all joy. So it's greetings, all joy. The word for greetings is Cairo. Um, if you think of the, the typical Hebrew sort of greeting of shalom, it is may you have peace, may you experience peace. Cairo is may you, may you be glad, may you have joy of some kind. So when it says greetings there, that's sort of a generic kind of English way of, we think of just saying hi. It's really, I, I'm wishing you joy, I'm wishing you gladness. And then immediately he goes into, and, and, and the next word that he uses is kara, which is the idea of joy, of all joy. That's the, the, the word that he uses next there in verse 2. So what he's essentially saying in his greetings is, brothers and sisters, you, and in verse 1, it, it speaks of those of the dispersion. You who have, through the persecution of your faith, have been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. Brothers and sisters, may you have joy. In fact... May you count it as all joy when you experience trials of every kind. He's really putting an emphasis on this. When he starts with all joy, it could be entirely as joy or, or sheer joy, would you count it? That's a, that's a pretty astounding command, right, when you think about it. All joy, may you count it when you experience trials. Now, that says to us, first of all, that this this joy that he's talking about, it's not the same thing as pleasure or happiness. He's not saying, may you just be able to grin and bear whatever trials come along. He's not saying, don't worry, be happy. For those of you who still have roots in the 80s, remember that. The, the trial that's testing me is not the source of the joy. It is something else. The, the, the trial is hard. We know this, the trials can be suffering, it can bring weeping, it can bring pain. But this joy is something else. This joy is something that is from within. 
This joy is somehow rooted back to the the faith in Jesus Christ that will be so paramount throughout this book. This this joy is something that rests in the fact that I have been rescued and saved by God. I have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I have a kind of contentment that allows me to be satisfied, that allows me to still have an inner sense of joy, even when there are trials and testing. So here's James, the servant, the slave of Jesus, wishing for his fellow servants to experience full joy, all joy, even in the midst of trials and testing and afflictions, illness or poverty or abuse or whatever it might be, he still says, count it joy, which then says, how so? What, what helps us to do that, to possess a mindset that joyfully regards the testing of my faith means I have to understand something about the testing of my faith from God's perspective. I have to understand what God is doing in this in order for me to see it in a joyful manner. I need to know something that helps me think correctly about this test so that I don't become embittered about it instead. I need to know that this testing of my faith, this trial that's producing this testing is valuable and important. And it is for several reasons. One of them is because it will show my faith in Jesus to be genuine. That's why he uses the language of testing in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This, This trial is intended by God to expose the genuineness of my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's meant to to show my faith, to to display it in some way. When you hold fast to God's promises and, and believe that he does work all things together for good, for them that love him and are called according to his purpose, then you know that trials and tests are purposeful. God does not just walk us through these things for for no purpose, just sort of bringing us, letting us experience trials. He does it purposefully. And part of it is, as he says, it's the testing of your faith. It is to prove its genuineness. And and we'll see in a, a few minutes, it also is to strengthen that faith. It is to grow and mature that faith. But I desperately need this mindset to prepare me. Because trials are coming. That's what he says, that you you will, when you meet trials of various kinds, not if you, but when you do. And this testing, what it will do ultimately is, is demonstrate that this faith that I hold in Jesus Christ is a gift from God. We know that from Ephesians chapter 2, that, that God has given us this, this faith, but also now that it's, it's rooted in his truth. And, and, and so, again, I say to you, this is God's kindness that he tests us, because if the opposite is the case, if I, if I walk into a trial experience and I become embittered by the test and I curse God, And the only objective that I have is to get out from underneath the test. I just want to be done with it. I just want this trial over. If that's all that's on my mind is I hate this, I'm angry about this, then the testing of my profession of faith is a good thing because it's helping me to to stop and pause and go, is this real, What what I'm trusting? Am I really trusting in Jesus Christ or am I saying one thing and yet I have no desire to live by that faith, to follow after Jesus Christ? And so again, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
We talked about the preparation, preparing for testing of faith. This is the perseverance part. We endure tests of our faith by God's provision of steadfastness. Our faith is from the Lord. He provides us with that faith. Our, our, the trials, the testing that we walk through, that is from the Lord, that is of his doing. But he's also designed that during those tests, there would be endurance or steadfastness that he, he provides to his people. You see the phrase at the beginning of verse 3, for you know, here's that, that knowledge piece again. He said, count it, consider it. Now he says, now you are knowing. It's a present tense. And so he's saying, you, you, you know this, you, you are already knowing this. Another reference here to, to what it is that should be going on in your mind. Knowing that God tests my faith, not only to prove it, but also to produce steadfastness, he says. That, that part of what he's doing here is he's, he's bringing endurance to your soul. So, so what does that look like? What does that mean? A couple of weeks ago, a fence that was, or a neighbor's fence that was over by our driveway started leaning badly. It started sagging in our direction. And we had one of those windstorms and it was really coming our way. And so I, I took a big two by four and I, I jammed it up in there to push the fence back up and to sort of lock it into the ground and hold it there. Fortunately, our neighbor is more skilled than I am and ultimately was able to actually repair the fence. But I, I had the job for at least a little bit of giving it some, some sense of steadfastness. Just giving it something so it would stand up, so it wouldn't fall over. That's, that's the idea of endurance or steadfastness. It, it's that which holds up, that which gives the ability to, to keep standing and to bear up under pressure so that when the wind blows, still standing, it, it remains steadfast. And that is what God is describing here is that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God works in us through his spirit to build up endurance in us, to build up an ability to, to stand firm in his truth. He's graciously helping us to stand. When there's no test, there's no trial, there's no wind bearing down, there's no, there's no apparent need for steadfastness. We don't, we don't see it at least as clearly. But testing is an opportunity for that. When we experience trials, those are the times when we come to understand just how weak and susceptible we are to being blown over and how kind and gracious and strong our God is to continue to hold us up, to continue to enable us to endure through that and to follow him. Trials provide an opportunity for God to shore me up with his truth, and that strengthens my faith. And, and, and where there is not faith in Jesus Christ. And again, as James writes this, he's no doubt writing to some who would profess faith in Jesus Christ, would say that they're part of the body in some way. Well, the wind will show that as well. The, the, the test of faith will also prove that. Jesus taught us this in the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8. Remember the parable where the, the seeds of the gospel are scattered on these different kinds of soil, and so they have different sorts of outcome. And one of them is seed that's scattered on very shallow soil. It's considered rocky area. It's, it's even worse than our field out there. We know how shallow that is sometimes uh, and, and how hard it is sometimes for things to grow. He's saying there's, there's rocky ground, and the seed that's scattered just barely finds root, and then it withers away and it dies. And, and Jesus describes that in Luke 8, verse 13. He says, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. 
They have no real steadfastness. When the test comes, instead of it building endurance, it drives them away. It's the thing that causes them to turn their back on the Lord. And so that gospel that looked sort of appealing, that seemed like something they might follow for a time, now when the test comes, proves to be something that simply drives them further away and they fall away. As believers in trials, God is building up endurance in us through that. He is strengthening our faith through that. And, and, and for us, then, our job during those trials is is to trust. It's not, there's, no, there's no magic here. There's no secret formula. When we are experiencing the testing of our faith, it is a time for trusting him, for resting in him, for believing the things that we know about God, for, for, for resting in his goodness and his mercy and trusting in him because it is the testing of our faith that produces endurance or steadfastness. It, it's not it's not on you and I, and you and I to, to try to produce our own endurance. It's not like weightlifting, you know, where you have to sort of discipline yourself in order to build up the strength. It is rather a resting in Christ, trusting in Him, and allowing Him to build up that endurance in our souls. Third thing is a purpose. We need a purpose, God's purpose, for what He intends by the testing of our faith. And verse 4 says, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. What does God intend when he tests your faith? He intends for you to, to walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive his gift of endurance, and ultimately he says that endurance is to produce maturity. There's the, there's the vision he's trying to give us. I, I, I'm seeking to grow you through this. I'm seeking to make you more like Christ. The full effect of steadfastness, he says, is perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. We want to read that as, therefore, if I pass the test, I'm done. I've passed. I no longer lack. That's not what he's saying because we know that this is an ongoing work in our lives of changing us and transforming us, and we don't, we don't get it usually the first time around. We, it, it's a growing sort of process. And, and so the idea here is that what God intends for us is that this test would cause us to become more like his son so that I am, I am maybe more humble, maybe more grateful, maybe more gracious toward others, maybe kinder, maybe more patient than I was at the beginning of this test because I have relied on him and he has built within me an endurance that is designed to grow me and mature me to be more like Christ. That's another reason why the testing of our faith is glorious and why when you go back to verse two and it says, count it all joy, and we say, ah, it's hard to count it as joy. But if we understand that he's He's proving our faith through it. He's strengthening our faith and he's maturing us to be more like Christ through that. He's growing us to look and act and respond more like Jesus. We often quote Philippians 1.6 when we think about God transforming us. He who began a good work in you will carry it, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And we like to think of good work as things that are good, things that I like. But it, it, his good work is the fact that he's making us like Christ. And he's doing that even through the testing of our faith and through the various trials that come along. And, and that's the beauty of, of the promise in Philippians is that he will persist in that. 
by his grace, he will continue to work in us to transform us into his image. God persists even when our response to the testing of our faith is not so great. God doesn't simply abandon us and move us on to move on to a, a better project, somebody who's more teachable in the moment. He continues to shape our character and to mature us and to bring these tests so that we might grow more and more into the image of Christ. When we know that this is what God intends, that helps us better see the value of him testing our faith. That, that helps me to be able to now count it as joy. Because if, if what the test does, if, if it does the opposite, and it reveals an increasingly sinful nature and an immature and angry response, and each passing test causes me to grow more bitter toward God, then again, God is graciously urging me to repent. And he is calling me to, 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 to look at my faith in light of this and see what it is that I am professing. Am I trusting in Jesus Christ? Because if I'm growing like Christ, then I, I should be bearing fruit of, of patience and peacefulness and self-control and love for others. So one more element on this testing of the faith, and it's this crying out to, to, to Jesus prayer part, and I want to come to that. It's in verses 5 through 8. But let me just drop down to verse 9 for just a moment, because... What he does in verse 9 essentially is illustrate for us a very practical example of one way in which our faith may be tested. James 1 verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. When we think of trials of various kinds... What ordinarily comes to mind? Uh, sickness, job loss, um, death of a loved one, some kind of, of hard affliction of, of some guy, uh, uh, um, unfaithfulness in marriage, some form of betrayal. We, we, when we think of trials of various kinds, those are the kind of things we put in there. But James cites a really interesting one here. He's giving an example of the testing of our faith. And in this case, the testing is, it, it comes with either riches or poverty. It's a testing that is brought about by either being exalted or seemingly humiliated, brought low. It, it, gain or loss are both other ways in which God is testing our faith. There's times when, when we read James and the, the temptation in reading the book of James is to sort of see it as a New Testament version of Proverbs. It's just sort of uh, a topic and some wisdom from God on this topic, and then we move on to the next topic and some wisdom from God. And, and so when we come to verse 9, it's easy having just been reading about trials and, and calling out to Christ, and then all of a sudden it's let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation is to think that James is switching gears here and talking about a different topic. But that's not the case because verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So he's still in the same context of trials, various kinds of trials that test our faith. And what he's saying here is that this is not, this is not just some teaching about riches and poverty. This is, this is an example of one way in which our faith is tested. It, it is either by riches, having much, or poverty, two ways that our faith may be tested. The, the easy side of that that we can generally think of is the, the one who loses everything. We, we get where the test is in that. You lose everything and you're, you're tempted to curse God. You're tempted to turn to anything but God for help at that point and to not trust in him. And you, you act out of desperation instead of out of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But those with riches can develop a false sense of security. They can get this idea that they are not vulnerable to anything, that, that faith in Jesus Christ is, is, is a nice attachment, but it's, it's not what everything revolves around. We get this in very practical terms. Look at the balance in my bank accounts and my savings, and, and, and I can probably tell you how I feel about what may come my way. If that balance is good and if the surplus is good, I have a, a sort of sense of security that something can come, something surprising can come, unexpected, and I'll be okay because I, I know what the number is there. Now, if I'm, on the other hand, in debt and I owe all over the place, then, then my mentality is all it's going to take is one more gust of wind and I will be leveled at this point. I, I can't take any more. And so we understand how poverty and riches can affect our thinking, but the point is here that either way they are tests of our heart attitudes. Because what verses 10 and 11 are saying is that it's not your bank account, the balance that is the guarantee of either disaster if there's not enough or comfort if there's plenty. Because what he says in these verses is all of us, even the richest of the rich, are fading flowers. We're all... We're all the same. We're all human beings. And so um, we all will eventually wither under an intense sun. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the endurance that God gives through tests, that's what makes the difference in trials. So that a man or woman in even the most humble of circumstances can still find an anchor for the soul and hope in God and trust that he is the God who is the provider, that he is the God who says, I know what you need and I will provide for your needs. Trust me. Uh, that, that poverty is a test, but so too our use of, of, of riches. Our, our world measures a person by things like their house and car and clothes and play toys, all of that kind of stuff, but that's not really what exalts a person, the true exaltation is to be more like Jesus, so that even our, our humblest and most trying circumstances are times in which we can see God's hand kindly at work providing for us, supplying for us, and growing us into the image of Christ. If we focus instead on material things to get all that we want, then, then James says, you can be sure of this, the rich man will fade away in his pursuit He'll be desiring and chasing and pursuing and going and suddenly it will end because our bodies fail and our beauty fades and we all stand before our creator, accountable before him. So, so what we do with the new job and the bigger salary or the demotion and the cut in salary, whether, whether we come to be exalted or humbled by life circumstances, to use James's language, what we do in terms of responding by faith in Christ, trusting Christ as being sovereign in this, trusting him as being good in this. That's ultimately how God graciously is transforming us in the midst of this. So he's using riches and poverty here as an example of, of what it is that he's teaching. Now, go back to verse 5, and this is really the last one in terms of this thinking about how to endure tests of faith. James 1 verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For, what person, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we've thought about uh, preparation, 
how, how to prepare, how to, how to count testing of our faith as something in which God is, is working to strengthen us, to prove the veracity of our faith. We, we've seen that in preparation. We've talked about perseverance, this idea that God builds endurance into his children as he's walking us through tests of faith. And then he's given us this example of, of, of testing of our faith in terms of riches and poverty. Lastly, he wants us to be convinced of how necessary it is that we cry out to him in the midst of the testing of our faith, that we ask him for help in the midst of trials. He's, he's seeking to convince us of the necessity of prayer. I said this to you earlier, there's, there's like four different references in this passage, the, the counting it, it, it about thinking, the, the you know this, and now he says here wisdom, if you lack wisdom. Another reference to the believer's mind and our thinking. Do, do you know what to do with this? And that's what wisdom speaks about now. You, you've got some knowledge. Now do you, you put it to practical use. And so he, he speaks there about knowledge. And then in verse 8, he'll talk about those who don't ask in faith as being double-minded. They're unstable in their thinking. If I'm ever to have a right mindset about dealing with the testing of my faith, I will have to be crying out to him. It will come because I, I have sought his wisdom and sought his help in this. It won't come just because I'm, I'm really smart, or I've got a Bible degree, or I, I read a book, or I took a class, or I heard a sermon. It's going to come by crying out and praying and seeking wisdom. We, if we wonder what this wisdom means, James actually gives us a, a good working definition in James 3.13. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So wisdom is more than just the comprehension of facts. It is sort of practical know-how. It is, it, it is works that show the truth that I believe. Wisdom comes into play when I say, I, I know God wants me to walk by faith in this trial. I know that God gives endurance. I know that God intends this to grow me in the image of Christ. Wisdom comes in when I say, how? How do I do this? How do I walk right now? How do I deal with this diagnosis, with this conflict, with this situation that I'm in the midst of? How do I love God and love others in the midst of this trial? I need help in this test. I need wisdom. And, and most important of all, when, we, when he says to ask for wisdom, really what he's getting at comes right off of verse 4 where he just said that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. I, I'm seeking wisdom and asking God to help me so that I can learn to be more like Jesus in this. So that in the midst of that trial, I can learn to act and react and speak and think more like my Savior. And I need help doing that. I need wisdom from God so that I can respond to this situation as Jesus would. And that's what he's saying to cry out to do. That, that's the wisdom James has in mind based on being perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. When your faith is being tempted by a trial or a temptation, by circumstances, by somebody else's sin, by an illness, you need wisdom in order to grow more like Christ through it. Remember, that's the outcome that, that God intends for us. It, it, it's, it doesn't, that outcome doesn't revolve around escaping the trial or, or stopping the test. That's where we mentally sometimes go. The reality is the trials and the tests will come and they will go. But God's design is to give you endurance through this 
so that you might grow more like Christ. And so the cry for wisdom is, help me do that. Help me to, to be like Jesus in the midst of this situation. That's why he's able to say, count it all joy, my brothers. Because this is not just an opportunity to test the genuineness of my faith or to strengthen my faith. It's ultimately an opportunity to display Christ. It's ultimately a chance to be more like Jesus Christ. That, that's the point of the command in verse 5. And, and verse 5, when it says, let him ask God, um, the, the CSB translation of that is, any, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. I think that's probably a better way of saying it. it you should do this. You, you should ask God because God is ready to generously give you wisdom and he will not begrudge you for it. One of the, the worst things we can do to ourselves is somehow believe that I, I can't bother God with this. I've got his word and I know his will. And so it's kind of silly that I have to bother by asking him again. Kind of like the, the child who, you know, has gotten directions three different times from the parents and still not really sure and, and doesn't want to go back to mom and dad and say, can you tell me again, what was the next thing I was supposed to do after those other two or three things? And, and we get that way with God sometimes where it's like, I, I can't, I can't really ask again, and, but that's exactly what he's saying. You need wisdom from me. Ask, I will not begrudge you this. I give generously. Think, of, think back to Isaiah, and remember Isaiah going to King Ahaz and saying to Ahaz, ask God for a sign. And what does Ahaz do? He stupidly responds, no, I won't do that. And he's punished for it. We, we, we ought not be foolish here. He's urging us to ask him for wisdom, and he says to do so with faith. There's that idea of double-minded. Don't be double-minded in your asking. Don't, don't just do this because you're told to do it, but you don't actually believe it. This is the, the point where we, we're in the midst of the trial, and we think, yeah, I guess I could pray, but seriously, what's God going to do, right? He's not going to take this trial away, so, so what's going to change because I pray? because I ask for wisdom. He's saying, ask in faith, believing that God wants to generously give you wisdom and that he will give it to you if you will ask him and he will help you. When we're in a trial, some kind of testing, it can be tempting to sometimes think, well, this, I'm being punished. This is God trying to get my attention for some sin in my life. And, 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 and we, we, again, sort of regress in those moments. We sort of pull back and think, oh, this is just God. He's just hammering me for something. He's, he's just after me. And we get embittered and we turn away from him instead of asking for wisdom. He may or may not be seeking to get our attention for some area of sin. He may or may not be seeking to, to awaken us to something. But I, I can say this, that the, the chief desire for us in this trial should still be how do I be more like Jesus in this? How do I, regardless of how I'm here, how do I now respond in a way that looks more like my Savior and speak and act and react in ways that are like Jesus? And God says, ask me. Ask me for the wisdom to do just that, and I will give to you generously. If you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you have a Father who loves you. And in his kindness, who tests your faith to reveal its genuineness, to, to strengthen you, to give to you endurance, but also to help you grow more and more like your beautiful Savior and be like Christ. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you as a people in need of help. 
Father, I, I, th- I think this morning in particular, there are no doubt brothers and sisters either here or online who are um, maybe right now saying, yep, I, I feel this right now, I'm there. I'm, I'm in a situation that is hard, that is painful. Uh, Father, I, I pray that even today, they would be encouraged by your word through James to think clearly about what it is you you can and do do through these trials, how you test to prove the genuineness of faith, how you give endurance to strengthen faith, how this is an opportunity for you to to produce maturity and, and growth. Lord, I pray that even in this moment when when they may be in the midst of hardship, that these truths would come through in a resounding way to give them hope and joy and to cause them to cry out to you for wisdom. Thank you that you you say these sorts of things to us to remind us that that asking is what we are not just encouraged to do, but, but commanded to do. You've told us that we should ask, that you desire to to pour out wisdom on us, that you will not begrudge us for asking. And so, Father, we come thanking you for that, praying that that for we who are not perhaps walking through trials right at this moment, that you would bring these things to mind as we do, that we would remember to, to seek help, to rest in you. Thank you that at the heart of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that for each one listening here, that there is a genuine faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and as Messiah, belief that he came and he died in the place of sinners and rose again to defeat sin and death, and that all who will trust in him will find life in him. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this word from James. Help us as a body of believers to be gracious to brothers and sisters around us to help those who are walking through the testing of their faith even now. Uh, may we be like those like those strong boards that are put in there to provide support. May we be used by you to, to help bring about endurance, to, to help stand alongside, to cry out together with. Lord, thank you for your, your good kindness to us and your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.